the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by AndrewandTodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try AndrewandTodd.com or call 888 now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt, the interview today with Katie Couric of Fame on the Today Show and CBS and every other place in America. Her brand new book, Going There, is a bestseller. It's a mortal lock for husbands and fathers looking for the perfect Christmas present. Good morning, Katie. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Hugh. So nice to be with you. Uh, Congratulations. This is a magnificent book. I'm going to recommend to people they get the audible version because I've never actually heard as well produced an audible book as this. If I can, I'm going to play a little excerpt. I don't think I violate the copyright here because it tells people why, why they want to listen. Here we go. The raspy voice Bobby, who'd seen it all, did my makeup. A hairstylist named Catherine blew out my short dew. A wardrobe woman, stout and stern, steamed my dress. I reviewed my notes, walked into the studio, and sat in my chair. The audio engineer clipped on my mic. Bryant looked over and said, You good? I said yes, even though I wasn't so sure. Jimmy Strake of the stage manager boomed, 30 seconds to air! At the stroke of seven, Against the theme music, staccato trumpets and swelling strings, the announcer intoned for the first time ever. From NBC News, this is Today with Bryant Gumbel, Catherine Couric, and Joe Garagiola. If there was any confusion among the audience about why I was sitting there, Bryant dispelled it with perhaps a little less tact than the moment required. In case you haven't gotten the message, Katie is now a, uh, a permanent fixture up here, a member of our family, and, and especially welcome one. Uh, Deborah Norville is not. Yikes. As for that Catherine in the intro, I still used it to counteract my Campbell Soup Kid looks. In real life, though, nobody called me Catherine. Except All right, my- that's enough. Katie Couric, that's why this Audible book is so great, is because of the inlays and the inflection. How long did it take you to lay this down? (laughs) Well, we had an incredibly talented producer put it together, but um, it took me eight days to read it. And then um, Adriana Fazio, who was my trusty researcher and and partner in crime, along with Lucy Kalin for the book, um, had pulled a lot of these things so I could rewatch them and look at them and think about them. And so we had them on hand and, it, you know, we wanted it to be feel like more like a narrative podcast with 
sound bites and clips from interviews, and we put the letter that Sullivan Ballou had written to his wife, Sarah, from Ken Burns' Civil War series, because that was read at my husband Jay's funeral. So, you know, I'm glad you appreciated it, Hugh, because a lot of work went into putting it together. And I think it really brings back people to, you know, let them see, see and hear what some of these moments were like and not just read them. Well, the David Duke interview excerpt, which I'll come back to, is, I mean, to include the actual audio is a unique experience. And I'm an audible book consumer, but the fetching Mrs. Hugh, as I refer to my wife, she blew through this. She inhaled it. I have three sets of questions in for you. I have my wife's, my daughter-in-law, my pregnant daughter with three other kids does not have the time yet, but she will do it soon. Let me start. (laughs) Let me start with my, my wife's most interesting comment. Katie had a loving, stable, and strong family life as a child, planting seeds for a successful career. And she got that because you were kind of on the cusp of middle class, upper middle class, no sure thing, vacations, winter coats every year, movies, but no candies. It's a perfect sort of middle, upper middle class upbringing. But Ellie and Carrie get a different life. They get a life of, of their mom being a superstar. Do you wish they had your life? Are you confident that they had the better choice? Oh, listen, I think I had a wonderful upbringing. I I think to your wife, Betsy's point, Hugh, I mean, I had wonderful parents. I'm not sure, you know, what qualifies as upper middle class, but I think we were pretty decidedly middle class. And I also think some of the way we were raised was informed by the fact that my parents were children of the Depression and very, very frugal, uh, just disdained any kind of ostentatious uh, behavior. And and really, I don't know, my, my mother was more uh, privileged than I growing up. Her dad was an architect and developer in Omaha. And I think in a way she was, even though she loved my dad so much, was slightly disappointed that we didn't live higher on the hog, as she might say. Um, but but Ellie and Carrie, you know, I have to say, I, I think many of my parents' values were so infused in me, and I handed them down to Ellie and Carrie to value things, to appreciate things. Obviously, they had a much, much more privileged life than I did. They went to private school, um, and and I never had to worry about money. Uh, which is a huge relief. And I know an, an incredibly, um, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. But I think, I, I think that I taught them how to, to value things. I tell a story about how my daughter Ellie wanted this thing called a baby G watch in like fourth grade, which was $100. And I said, absolutely not. My, my, my younger daughter called me from La Perla, which is, you know, super fancy high end lingerie store to, because her friend and her friend's mother were buying new bras. I was like, are you out of your mind? So (laughs) I think, I, I think I even said I don't even get my under things at La Perla. So, so I think I try to to really focus on on what should be valued. We always did kind of we when they'd have lemonade stands to raise money for cancer research or women in Afghanistan. Um, so I think they're they're great girls. So I hopefully did something right. But it was challenging, as I wrote in the book, 
to be in this kind of, uh, you know, world of quote unquote celebrity, which I never consider myself a celebrity. I kind of bristle at that word, but affluence um, that that I had growing, you know, raising them in New York City. Now, I got to ask, because, again, this is the second of the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt's question, not one that she articulated, but the story that she told most often to guests in our homes in the months since we've listened to your book is about Doris the nanny. And it's a cautionary tale. Did did you expect that to resonate? You know, when people read books, they tell the same stories about the books over and over again. And I think the Fetching Mrs. Hewitt will be telling Doris the nanny stories for a long time. Well, you know, I did want it to be a cautionary tale, Hugh. I think, you know, that that relationship that a mother in particular has with her child's caregiver, especially if they live in the home, can be very fraught. Boundaries can be broken. And um, I've always had sort of trouble with boundaries, honestly. I'm very, and, and I think, I think she probably knew that in terms of, you know, I, I get very close to people. I try to be welcoming and inclusive. And, um, yes, Doris the nanny was, it, it was actually also a, a, an important message from me to listen to your gut. You know, if something doesn't feel right, if something feels uncomfortable and weird, like Doris asking me to hug her before she went to bed, um, as a woman almost 50 years old, um, and me thinking, oh, she has no one in her life. No one loves her. I feel so bad for her. And me acquiescing to her request, it's like, no, that is really weird. If something like that is happening, don't make excuses for it. Don't compromise your own kind of gut and, and, and know that that just isn't appropriate. And of course, She's got real, pro- you know, serious. Yeah. You're sympathetic. Emotions. You're sympathetic. But I, I just want people to understand there are amazing life lessons in going there. It's not a story of I knew this person and I did this interview. It's actually about, uh, in fact, I want to go to where my daughter-in-law's first question. It's about getting there, not going there, but getting there. She asked, how are you so confident at such a young age? Don't know many young people who bluff their way past the front desk with a fake appointment. I mean, do you recommend that to young women now? Um, well, it wasn't it wasn't really a fake appointment. I'd like to correct that. Basically, I used my connections. When I went to ABC News in Washington, I had applied for a job there as a desk assistant, the lowest rung on the on the on the ladder. I I basically said to the receptionist hi, is Davey Newman there? Um, And she said no. And I said, she was the executive producer of World News Tonight. And I said, I'd love to say hi. And she said, well, we don't give, we don't let people up who don't have appointments. And I said, well, can I call him? And then I called him and I said, hi, Davey, you don't know me, but my sister (laughs) Kiki went to Yorktown High School with your twin brother, Steve and Eddie. And I also know your niece, Julie Newman, we used to play together because she lives right up the street from me. Can I come and say hello? So I didn't really fake an appointment. I used I used my um, quote unquote dubious connection to Davy to just kind of go up and say hi to see if I could win him over or to see if I could get my foot in the door. And so I don't know if I was. I guess I what that did take a certain level of confidence. Oh but my I also, gosh! Yes. <laughs> 
Oh, my. Now, I, I want to make sure I mention to people before I go to our very fun question. You were a Pentagon reporter. I went to the memorial service uh, for Post employees yesterday of Fred Hyatt. I don't know if you ever crossed paths with Fred at the at the Pentagon. Uh, Pentagon reporters are serious people. I mean, that is the best place to begin a reporting career, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it gives you automatic street cred. If you have to learn about missile systems and, you know, a war strategy, and you have to kind of endure those Pentagon briefings where they tell you very little often, and you have to really, you know, walk the halls looking for information. Yes, it's great training for a reporter. But I think for someone like me who wasn't necessarily taken seriously as a legitimate person and journalist. I think when I came into the Today Show, the fact that I had covered the Pentagon did give me automatic street cred with people like Brian Gumbel. Oh, absolutely. And when they were talking about Fred's tenure there yesterday, I can see why he became a very successful editor and you became a very successful anchor because there, you just can't bluff it. Her short question, Katie Kirk, before we go to our, our first break, the... Um, you did a lot of summer concerts at the Today Show. What was your favorite? My favorite summer concert? At the Today Show. Oh, I don't know. I, I love Sting, so I've always loved Sting. And, of course, Beyonce, uh, Destiny's Child, the precursor of Beyonce. I brought my daughters to that concert, so I got I scored big points with them. That's the giveaway. That's the poker tell. That's the one you remember and that they will be talking about. Welcome back, America. You were talking to Katie Couric, whose great new memoir, Going There, is on bestseller lists in bookstores everywhere. It's the perfect Christmas present for people who love good books and especially for people of a certain age and for young people. So that's everybody. People of a certain age will recognize that girl uh, and I love the asides, Katie. Uh, they are they're terrific in this book, and so I thought I'd throw that I, in. I, pre- I appreciate the musical choices, Hugh. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to play Helen Reddy. That was too obvious. Uh, I did, however, discover you're a tri-delt. Now, I, I bust tables for the tri-delts when I was at law school in Michigan. They were very mean. Were they nicer at the University of Virginia? <laughs> of course they were nice. I was a tri-delt for one year because I lived on the lawn at UVA, and I I couldn't bear living, uh, eating my meals at, at Newcomb Hall, the cafeteria, one more year. But um, I had a lot of friends in that sorority. It was a great group of women, and they were very nice. And I'm sorry the ones at Michigan weren't. Oh, they were terrible, and I've, I've always held it against. I want to talk to you about John and Jeff and about your mom. John, your dad, Jeff, the wonderful producer, and, and boy wonder, Jeff Zucker, who I know from the debates in 2016. And then I want to talk about your mom as well. Let's talk with John, your dad. He sounds like the perfect dad, Katie. Always encouraging, with limits, taking you to NPC. I think you heard Louis Evans. We might have been in the church at the same time. We oh, at- yes. No, at- well, Louis Evans. No, Louis Evans. I think. I think the one the National Presbyterian Church was Brian, um, and I'm trying to remember his last name. He was a guest, uh, a guest uh, minister from, I think. New York Presbyterian at National Presbyterian. And he was oh. an amazing, an amazing minister, just an incredible speaker. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, well, there's Ben Patterson from California. I don't know the New Yorkers. I knew Louie pretty well. We yeah. went a lot. I'm a Catholic, but I would go with my Presbyterian wife, and I do today, and I have a great pastor today. Kitty, are you still a churchgoer at all? Yes, I go. You know, I haven't, you know, because of COVID, it's been pretty tricky but I belong to Brick Church here in New York City. 
I started to go to Marble Collegiate because I thought it was interesting and, and a little more of a diverse group going there than than Brick Church. But did I you know that Marble I, Collegiate is where President Trump attended? I talked to him last week at, in this hour and we talked about Norman Vincent Peale and Marble Collegiate. Did you know that? Yes, I know. I know that's where he attended. And uh, it's a really interesting church, very into social justice. They do. You know, they talk about current events at that church in a way that really resonates with me. I remember being frustrated when I went to my church after the the shooting in Dunblane, Scotland. Of course, the the seat, seat of the press, you know, the yes, Presbyterian. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I was really just dismayed that no one talked about it in the sermon. And I like places that talk about what's going on in the world and give it, give you some perspective. But I really enjoy church just because I like feeling the community there, feeling sort of with other people. And as I wrote in my book, you know, I like I like the almost the familiarity of of singing things like praise God from whom all blessings flow and things like that. And it's family. It's an extended family. Now, your dad is such a remarkable dad that I, I think I told you when I set up the interview, I want people to understand you can be a great father on a budget and as a reporter and as a PR guy. Did, did, did you deliver a eulogy? Did you have to speak? It I is, did. Of how'd course. you do? I, you know, of course I was a mess, but, um, you know, I love my eulogy. I keep all the eulogies from like my mom's, funeral, my dad's from Jay's, from my sister, Emily, because, boy, it really does give you the essence of the love you had for that person and what made them so special in your life. And yes, I, of course, I, I did the eulogy. My favorite, one of my favorite parts of that book was, and, and my relationship with was my dad was when we were walking out of the, his hospital room, my brother and I, and I said, Johnny, I guess we need to, to write Dad's obituary. And he said, oh, Katie, he's already written it. Yeah, it uh, look, he's a ma- well, he was a newspaper man, so of course he would have. I am curious, though, Katie, when you look back at this, do you think he's a role model for other dads? Like Jay is for young husbands of pregnant women. I think Jay gets medals uh, yes. for your, this. Yes, Jay. Jay was very progressive in terms of the division of labor and what and how what a huge help he was. He was an equal partner in every way. And you know, Melinda Gates writes about the fact that women do an average of seven more years. You mentioned that, of, yeah. Of, of house of housework and you know and taking care of kids. And Jay was such an equal partner. I think you're right. He's a great role model. And I, of course. You know, I think my dad hung the moon to you. So, of course, I think he's a great role model for fun. Well, it comes through. It's just it, when he calls you up after interviews and says you've gone too far with the safe sex de- demonstration or you, <laughs> yeah. you are making how much. That's actually my favorite. You're making how much. I got that a lot from my dad, too, when I was making more as a lawyer. Than, <laughs> I'm in a, sure. Katie, uh, uh, fetching Mrs. Hewitt is one quarter Jewish. Her grandfather was Jewish. And I was sitting in the room when her sister discovered at the age of like 45 that they were a quarter Jewish and she was gobsmacked. How did you react when you found that out? And that the fact that your mother hadn't made a deal about it, it wasn't hidden. It just wasn't discussed. 
Yeah, I was surprised. And I think as I write in the book, Hugh, I was a little like, oh, because I didn't know many Jewish kids. There were two in my school, Sandy Markridge and Sandy Sager. And I I remember thinking, wait, what? Um, so I was a bit, I was a bit gobsmacked. That's a good word to describe it as well. Um, and and I think it seems so foreign to me because I wasn't, you know, this was Arlington, Virginia. And I think, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people about this, about the real anti-Semitism that existed then and still does today. And, um, you know, about the fact that my mom, I wouldn't say she was closeted, but she certainly wasn't very open about about her faith. And yeah, it's funny what you remember, Katie. I don't think I'll forget the the upset of your mother at hearing the flower ladies make an anti-Semitic comment, but and you asked her, why didn't you confront them? And she just didn't want to. And then she asked you not to use oi. I, that's a very interesting <laughs> right? aspect of her. Right. Yes. So I think, you know, I talked to my cousins about this, uh, my Jewish cousins. They're, they're Southern Jews. I adore them. And this, they, you know, my cousin Henry said, you know, we weren't we and they were very much, you know, they went to synagogue, et cetera. He said they had a, a store in Alex City, Alabama. And he said, you know, we closed the store for for the holidays like, you know, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. But, um, you know, we just didn't wear it on our sleeves. We emigrated to this country. We were all about assimilation. We were citizens first and Jews second. So I think it was just a different time and a different way of looking at things. And, you know, I think it also is a very interesting observation about the evolution of assimilation versus kind of identity. And, you know, I was told recently melting pot is no longer a term uh, that you want to use. It's more of mosaic because there's much greater emphasis of, toward honoring and and being proud of your heritage and your instead of kind of being an American first. So it's interesting. Well, 30 years ago, when you were doing the Today Show and covering the riots, I was doing the nightly news in L.A. and we covered the salad bowl of L.A. We wouldn't use melting pot because it offended some of our diverse communities. We use salad bowl. But you're right. It's no longer there. I want to go to Jeff Zucker. Boy, wonder. Uh, I just yeah. turned the keys of the Nixon Library over to a 28-year-old, and I've told the board, perfectly competent, absolutely will run it better than I ever did. Jeff Zucker at 26 gets the key to the Today Show. I still think that's kind of breathtaking. Now, I've had Jeff in my ear during presidential debate. I can't imagine Jeff in my ear every day. I mean, that might be like an earwig. Is he ever out of your ear? <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was out of he was out of my ear plenty, but... You know, he does this Vulcan mind meld, I think, with some of his anchors and uh, and likes to be in there. I'm surprised he never wanted to be on the air. But, um, yeah, he he was a, a force at 26 and did an amazing job with the Today Show. Kind of didn't care about breaking things, didn't care about disrupting, uh, didn't care about, well, this is the way we always did it. And I think he led the way for a real... I think serious innovation of all the morning shows because oftentimes what he would do, the others would follow. Well, I, I must say, I think it's brilliant that when you go on with Brian Gumbel, who's Mr. Sports Encyclopedia, Jeff would give you sports facts to know and tell 
that stunned Bryant until he figured it out. It was Jeff in your ear. Let me ask you. uh, Well, I have to say I was the person behind that scheme. Oh, really? Yeah. I said, let's just pretend like I know stuff. So tell me stuff that I can say. Oh, I I miss that. Because when you listen to a book, you miss stuff. I just heard the fact that he would tell you, tell him, you know, uh, Bart started through 100 yards or whatever it was that he put in your ear. Let me ask you about Jeff right now. CNN's in trouble. If he called you up and said, Katie, come over and anchor our nightly news, would you do it? I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, we have sort of a strange parting on our syndicated show. Um, it wasn't for him. And uh, so and I think it's been a little awkward with the Matt Lauer stuff. So uh, first of all, I don't think he would. And secondly, um, you know, I, I'm just I don't feel super comfortable doing commentary. You know, it's fine for people who want to, but to give that kind of editorial, to editorialize to that extent, I don't think it's just something I, I wasn't trained to do. I haven't done. Um, it's sort of the difference between being an editorial page writer and a reporter. Yes. And, um, you know, I, I, I love what I'm doing now. I have my own media company. We have 40 people we're doing newsletters and podcasts. I'm developing documentaries and scripted shows. I like the freedom. And to be on TV every night sounds doesn't sound very appealing to me, honestly, Hugh. Okay. I just It would save CNN if they brought you back. That's why. And I thought an old friend might get because they're, they're dying on the vine because of, of politicization. But I want to go to my big thought. I think the reason at the end of this you're successful is that you're very norm driven out of Arlington, out of your upbringing, out of being in touch with people and non-discriminatory towards people and in touch with them, and that you were not particularly left wing or right wing, but that newsroom today, I had lunch yesterday with one of the Washington writers for the LA Times. Nobody in their newsroom voted for Trump. On election night at 30 Rock, when I was on with with, uh, Jim Carville and Tom Brokaw and Chuck Todd Uh and Lester and Savannah, I'm the only person on that floor that voted for Trump. Has has America news media lost track of half of the country, at least even feeling any empathy for them? I, you know, I don't think I, I hope I hope that there is a lot of empathy people feel for Trump voters. I think I mean, boy, this is a longer conversation, Hugh. I do think that there there are I think by virtue of his bombastic personality and some of the outrageous things he said and some of the mistruths he spoke, it was very hard, I think, for people who are who are seeking truth and trying to share facts to not be extremely hard on Donald Trump. You know, he's still insisting the election was rigged. Uh, and I think I do think it's not a left right issue. It's sort of you know, it's it's a right-wrong issue in many of these cases. And I'm curious how you feel about that, Hugh, not to turn the tables on you. Oh, you just did. Well, he's I, wrong about the election. I've said so since November the 2nd or 3rd or the day after the election. I've told him we disagree. he's just wrong. And November and January 6th was awful, and he should have acted far earlier than he did and with much more force. But I can still talk to him because I know that half the country – want to hear from him. And so what we disagree with, I move on. And it just seems to me that there's an aesthetic critique of Trump, which is in a lot of new room. And there is that factual divide because he will throw off stuff like that's just factually incorrect. And you can stop and argue about it. Or you can just move on. 
the way the audience does. But I'm very worried about newsrooms. As worried as newsrooms are about Trump, I am worried about newsrooms not reflecting America. And, and, and you know, 75 million Americans voted for him, Katie. And, yeah, and no, not- no, no. I mean, I, I think you have a point about uh, having diversity of thought in newsrooms, too. But I'm going to have to push back on this idea that you correct him and move on. There's something that's fundamentally lost when someone lies and says mistruths or calls all Mexicans rapists and murderers. I mean, I know he can be hyperbolic. I know Donald Trump a bit myself. But, you know, I think it sets a terrible example. I mean, you're all about my dad setting a good example for me. And and I think it sets a terrible example for people all over the country and for kids, the way he behaves and the, the language he uses and words matter, Hugh. Oh, the pushback to the pushback, though, is what you did with David Duke is what I try and do with every guest, not just the former president, which is use their own words, play it for them if you can, and not make a judgment explicit in your question. Allow the audience to decide. I mean, when David Duke, when you said, why did you use Ron Brown? And this is from memory, Katie, so I, I hope I don't yeah, get this yeah. wrong. No, I think you yeah. said Ron Brown and Jesse Jackson, they have, they're not running the party. Why did you use that? And he was befuddled, right? And then your father called you up. He was very proud. It's when a broadcaster is neutral but sharp that you get sparks that work. Well, I I agree that I think that you fight fight mistruth with truth. And I think that part of the reason the media has, it's just, well, I mean, this is no no newsflash to your listeners, Hugh, but it's so polarized and it's so bifurcated and it's so left right and it's it's really upsetting i worry about that as well um and you know listen it's it's a very complicated thing i was oh, so endless we, we don't have enough time we don't have yeah, enough time. asking commission on disinformation and you know when you have the leader of the free world being one of the biggest you know perpetuators of misinformation, you also have a real problem and disinformation. So, I mean, let's have drinks and discuss it some more. All right. Katie, I want to thank you for your time. Going There is a terrific book. I want everyone to give it to everybody in their family. I appreciate your generosity of time. Good luck. I appreciate appreciate you reading the book, Hugh. That means so much to me. And not only reading it, but, but appreciating it, because it was very misrepresented by the tabloids, and that was disconcerting to me. So the fact that you actually read it and you felt it was worthwhile means the world to me. It's fabulous. It's a great listen. I listened to it. I have to be honest with you. And so I, my notes are all screwed up, but it's a fabulous <laughs> listen, and people can read it. But uh, thank you, Katie. Have a great Christmas. Okay. Thank you, Hugh. Great to talk to you. Bye-bye. That concludes today's episode of The Interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.